next um, section after uh, the reading that we had this morning. Luke chapter 24. And we're going to read uh, the first ten verses together. Jesus has been crucified. He's been buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Sunday morning arrives. And this is what happens next. Luke 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at uh, early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And we'll end our reading there. At verse 10. There's a famous book that was uh, made into a film a couple of of years ago called The Case for Christ. Where uh, Lee Strobel uh, tells the story of his own quest uh, for truth as a skeptic. uh, Considering uh, the claims of uh, the end of the four gospels. Things are going well for him at work. Uh, He's promoted. Uh, He's the new legal editor of the Chicago uh, Tribune. Uh, But the opposite is happening at home. His wife, Leslie, uh, her her newfound faith in Christ, has has more than annoyed Lee uh, as as he watches her. It's annoyed him more than just a little. This uh, compels Strobel uh, to to use his journalistic and legal training to try to disprove the claims of Christianity, pitting his uh, resolute atheism uh, right up against her newfound faith. But he quickly discovers that the whole thing rests on the truth or otherwise of the resurrection. Uh, But as he uh, continues his research... He begins to reach conclusions that he realised were much more far-reaching than a mere than mere domestic bragging rights. Let's do our own fact-finding this morning from this passage, uh, from Luke chapter 24. First of all, when? Well, it's the first. It's the first day of the week. It's it's Sunday. Uh, all four gospels tell us that this event happened on the Sunday morning. It's it's early. It's uh, it's early dawn. Where? That's the tomb. We're at the tomb. We're at the garden tomb of of Joseph of Arimathea. It's the tomb uh, cut in in stone, out of stone, that we read about, uh, that we read about in verse 55, just a few verses above. Who? Well, this is a little bit more complicated. The they that verse 1 spoke spoke about, uh, they who who went to the tomb, are, are the women. Verse 10 tells us more. It's Mary Magdalene and someone called Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and other women. So that's at least five women. We've got three of them that are named and two others which are assumed from the word women. There has to be two there. 
Uh, Cherith, my wife, uh, has got many female friends with the same name. Uh, there are three or four, three or four Lindsays, I think, uh, four or five Lauras. Uh, there are two sets of Laura and Richards. Uh, there, there's a couple of Emmas. Uh, and often there is a random snippet of information that comes my way in the kitchen with a name, and I have no idea which one she's talking about. I don't know if you've ever been there. Uh, and the name Mary, of course, is, is like that in the New Testament, isn't it? Particularly when it comes to those who are looking on as Jesus dies on the cross, uh, those who appear at the tomb here early on the Sunday morning. Which Mary is it? The name, uh, Matthew's account uh, mentions two Marys uh, watching on from a distance as Jesus hangs on the cross on the Friday. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. And also there is, is the mother of the sons of Zebedee, who are, who are the disciples, James and John. When Luke here uh, mentions Mary, the mother of James, in verse 10, you see it there? Mary, the mother of James. He could be talking about either Mary, whose sons are called James and Joseph, as I just mentioned from Matthew's account, or uh, he could be talking about Mary, the mother of our Lord. You know Mary, who gave birth to Christ. Because she also has a son called James, and others called Joseph, and Simon, and Jude, and at least two daughters. Confusing, to say the least. Uh, the card shops sold plenty of James and John mugs, uh, not just Mary, in those days. There is uh, Mary's sister, uh, who, depending on how you read the grammar of uh, the original in John 19, verse 25, is either also called Mary... Or is an entirely different person uh, from another woman called Mary, uh, the wife of Clopas. There's someone called Salome, uh, who's believed to be the mother of the sons of Zebedee, uh, the same woman that we just mentioned in, 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 in Matthew 27. Some have also called her Mary, but we'll discount that. But that's, that's not really substantial, uh, that we'll discount that one. Mary of Bethany, uh, that's Lazarus' sister, uh, you'll be relieved to know, makes no appearance at the tomb or the cross. So, summing all that up, we have four Marys watching on at a distance at the cross or the tomb or both. We have someone called Joanna and we have someone called Salome. At the tomb, which is where we're looking at this morning for sure, are Mary Magdalene, Joanna, one Mary with a son called James, uh, either Mary the mother of James and, uh, uh, and the younger, or Mary the mother of our Lord, and Salome, who is uh, the mother of James and John, the disciples. But one other woman has to be there to make the mass work. The other women has to be at least Two unnamed in verse 10. So five women at least at the tomb. Two of them are called Mary. That's your summary, okay? That's the who. Five women at least. Two of them called Mary. Now consider why. Why they they, they went with spices that were told that uh, uh, in the first verse. uh, They're wanting to anoint the body of Jesus. That's what they're doing. That they've arrived thinking that uh, the body had not been adequately prepared and they wanted to do things right. And finally, and crucially, what? What do, they, what do they witness? What do they come across when they get there at the tomb? Well, they witness something before their very eyes. Uh, they, they witness an empty tomb. 
They have arrived prepared uh, and are shocked to discover that Jesus' body is not there. The stone, which is greater than any man or beast could lift, uh, was rolled away from the entrance. Luke, who writes this book that we've been reading from, this gospel, at the beginning of his gospel, uh, has been very careful to tell us that he has done his research. He's wrote, this is what he writes in the second verse of his, of his gospel. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. He's been careful. He's, he's looked at the evidence. He's done his, he's done his homework. The way this is written, it's, it's the bare facts. He's asked the eyewitnesses. He's pieced together the evidence. And the facts speak for themselves. At least five women arrive early on Sunday morning at the tomb that Joseph of Arimathea and expect to find a body waiting to complete Jesus' burial. To do it properly for somebody that meant so much to them. But as we move on, they, have a, they end up in a body search. We note that. Instead of finding Jesus as they expected, these women find something else. They find an empty tomb. They begin to be perplexed, the text says. That means utterly at a loss. They had lost their Lord and Saviour to a cruel death on a cross. He, uh, the, the, the chapter before kept telling us that he didn't deserve it, didn't it? It said it at least twice. He's done nothing wrong. And now they didn't even have a body to complete the burial. They had lost him not once, but twice. If you think about it. And so they were utterly at a loss, Luke tells us. Ever been in that sort of situation? Uh, I mean, how can this be right? I'm a Christian. I've trusted in the Lord Jesus. And then this has happened. Uh, and it feels like you've, you've fallen off the wagon. Uh, it feels like your whole world is caving in. How can this be right? How can this be right? Has God forgotten me? H- have I been mistaken even all these years? H- have, have I been mistaken with the whole thing? I mean, you talk about confusion. How can these things be? Mary says to the angel, announcing her pregnancy. How can these things be? It's that idea. It's the same idea here. And that's right, for while these thoughts are going through these women's minds, two angels appear. Two men is what they they look like, uh, standing beside them. But verse 23 tells us, if you look down, we'll be looking at this passage later on tonight, tells us that they were angels. Heaven invades earth. When something big happens in the Bible, okay? Remember that. Heaven invades earth when something big happens in the Bible. When something incredibly significant is going on, angels show up. It's happened before. It happened at the birth of Jesus. Verse, 20, verse 4 sorry, says they have dazzling apparel. That's an old word for, for clothing. They're clothed in bright, dazzling glory. Uh, and, and the reaction of the Marys and Joanna and Salome and the other women, women is to go from confusion to fear. Michael Wilcock uh, is a commentator. He says this. They were perplexed by what they did not see and frightened by what they did see. 
That's good. They're frightened as they bow their faces to the ground. And and time and time again uh, in the Bible, there is fear at the appearance of angels. We know this because of what they're always saying. What's the first thing an angel always says in the Bible? Fear not. Isn't that right? Fear not, Joseph. Fear not, Mary. Fear not, shepherds. Uh, Manoah, in, in, in the book of Judges, his wife says that the appearance of the angel was very awesome. Now, that's not an American awesome. That's a, that's a, that's a worthy of great fear awesome. Isn't it? It's an incredibly frightening experience for these people, these women. That's what happens as the spiritual world The unseen world meets the physical world. Do you remember that? All that you can see and hear and touch is not all there is. There is an unseen world. That is is every bit as real, every bit as true as what you can see and touch and feel. We're surrounded by the denial of of that as being superstitious. You know, we are. Scientific naturalism and all sorts want to say there's no such thing. But that is not so. We've been lied to. Our children are being lied to. That's the truth. In Daniel chapter 10, uh, the two worlds collide as uh, as the angel Michael battles with the evil angel associated with the kingdom of Persia. And the heavenly spiritual realm impacts what's going on directly in the physical world. The two worlds are colliding. It's happening here as well. When Paul tells the Ephesians about the battle that they face as Christians, he tells them, he reminds them that it's not physical, but, but, but in the other realm we battle with cosmic powers and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, he says. In most cases, angels are not seen by people. In their ordinary activities, they, they're not visible. That doesn't mean they're not real. For example, uh, Balaam, famous for his donkey, could not see the angel standing in front of him in the room. But the angel was standing in front of him in the room. The donkey could see it. Elisha prays that the eyes of, of his servant would be open to see the angels all around him. That's because they were all around him. In reality. He just couldn't. They just couldn't see it. But when they appear... Well, the two worlds collide. Uh, the angels here, they, they look like men, we're told. They appear at, at, at Abraham's tent, as the children have been looking at recently in Sunday school. And they're three men, that's what we're told. Three men. And, and, and they speak. Uh, they, they're God's messengers. Uh, here, uh, to, to messengers to the women, to give definitive answers to the very short body search that they've undertaken. Where is he? Where is he? As we move on to truth discovery, the third point. They speak, these angels, and it's a question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Why, what are you doing looking for Jesus in a tomb? That's what that means. I mean, that's where dead people are. He, he's not here, but has risen. Verse 24, uh, when, when these women report later to the disciples, uh, that this clarifies. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. He's risen. 
Just as the angels announced the birth uh, in the other rival for the single greatest event in all of human history, they announced his resurrection. And it's that sense of the far-reaching impact of this that, that eludes these women. They can only see a, a small corner of, of the tapestry of the screen, not, not the bigger picture. They don't remember what, what Jesus said about it. Uh, they, they don't see any more than the bare facts in front of them. Uh, they're, or, or their own concerns, which, which are entirely legitimate. They're, they're perplexed because cause all they see is the missing body of a dead friend that they're grieving. And we, we could feel for them. We should feel for them. But they can't see any more, more meaning than that. They, they can't piece together his life and, and ministry, the, the betrayal of Jesus, the, his crucifixion, all the things he said about himself beforehand, all the things that the, that the scriptures said about him. Whatever has happened at the tomb, they can see no meaning in this event. It's just another one of a whole series of events that are equally meaningless. They see no bigger picture. No far grander implications. They are first to the scene. Of, 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 in the aftermath of the most significant event in human history. And they can't see it for what it is. But let's not be too hard on them, for, for we are often like this too. Most of us, as, as people, live through the events of life without any awareness of their meaning. We doubt there is a meaning. We, we live through the lens of our own physical needs. Um, food on the table, clothing, security, these things occupy us. But the deeper need that to understand what it's all about, that remains unsatisfied. And add to this the, the rush of modern living in the West, and we're even less likely to consider what we're really here for. But there is a surface level that Mary, the Marys and her friends need to get underneath. And it's the same for us. There's more than just mere fact-finding. There's more than, than, than the search for a body. This is not just about their situation, uh, localised, uh, there, then, and, and just right there and then. This is massive. This is actually massive. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians, he writes later in a book called 1 Corinthians, that the resurrection is of the greatest importance. Here's what he says. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. For this is about not just the Marys and her friends. This is about the salvation of lost mankind. That's what this is about. That's what the word must means in verse 7. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. It must be this way. God has planned this on purpose to achieve something vital. It must be this way. It's the truth about salvation. The Bible tells us that salvation hangs on Jesus' resurrection. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Je that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10 verse 9. Learned it in Sunday school. Learned it in youth club. What does that mean? What does that mean? 
the offer of salvation, being saved, well, that requires us to consider what we're being saved from. Uh, and, and that's our own sinfulness. That's, what, that, that's our own rebellion against God. Our, our desire to, to live in God's world without regard for him. To live for ourselves and not for his glory. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Does that mean just to accept the bare facts? Is, is, is that what that means? It is that you accept the bare facts, but it's certainly more than that. Believing in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead is more than just accepting a fact. It means that you're confident that God is for you, that he will save you, that he is trustworthy, that he has done what you could not do yourself, that he could make you good enough by Jesus giving you his righteousness and you giving him your sin. That the cross was... Christ dying your death, paying your way. That's what it means to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. The truth of salvation, but the truth of identity. Because the resurrection proves that Jesus is who he says he is. They're all scoffing, aren't they, at the cross. He says he's the son of God. Come down, come down. Come on, if you're the son of God, show us. You know, There's no problem if you're the son of God. But when he rises from the dead, well, the centurion, he says, well, surely this was the Son of God. The centurion gets it as he's hanging on the cross. But when he rises from the dead, it's really clear because Romans 1 says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Because ordinary men of the common sort don't rise from the dead. You'll agree with that. And the resurrection means that the last statement I just made will come true in the future because ordinary men and ordinary women of the common sort will rise from the dead because of the resurrection. That's the truth of repetition. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 14 Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Christ and bring us with him into his presence. It's the future day. When those who are the Lord's will rise to everlasting life. And those who are not will rise to everlasting judgment. But it's not just future. No, it's, it's power to live in the present as well as the Christian that hangs on this. Listen to Romans 8 verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's the truth of the spirit. Because of Jesus rising from the dead, he he sends his Holy Spirit. And the same power is at work in us. Believing in the resurrection means trusting in all the promises of salvation and in his identity and hope for the future and life for now which, which stand and hang on it. It's the realisation that what he says is true. The final examination this morning is a memory test. No one is entertaining the idea that the body has been stolen here. No one is is entertaining the idea that he's been eaten by some wild animal. They're not thinking that. No, the angels evoke a memory test to what Jesus has already said would happen. Verse 6. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee 
that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And that's just it. You see, on their own with the bare facts, there's confusion and personal preoccupation and they can't piece it all together. But, but, but when you bring in Jesus' words, well, it's, it's, it's all coming together very quickly here. It's, it's, it's just accepted, isn't it? It's taken as given. It's believed his prediction about himself when he was still living. Jesus' words are powerful. powerful. They're powerful enough to, to enlighten the honest seeker. They're, they're powerful enough to seek it. They're words that are breathed out by, by, by the life-giving Spirit of God. They're the very, the very same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus' words bring life, and they still do. And this is a whole book of Jesus' words. And that's enough for these women. How do you know that? Well, it's enough for them because by the very next verse, they're telling others, aren't they? Verse 9, they're telling the 11 disciples and the rest. There's no longer 12 disciples. Of course, Judas has went his way. It fits with the facts perfectly. He's not asking them to change reality, this angel. No, he's not asking them to remove their minds entirely and accept by blind faith. This is not religious wishful thinking, changing their recollection of events to, to suit. No, it makes perfect sense to these women, doesn't it? You put together an empty tomb with what Jesus said, and then you've got it. It's it's there. It all adds up. An explanation, a meaning to the events of of their lives in the past couple of years. And yet it shoots far further. Because it's an explanation to the events of all of our lives. Jesus' words explain it in this book they, they explain the world is full of sin God made it good and yet when Adam fell into sin he, he's our head, he's our representative he, he ruined it for all of us and we were born as sinners and yet we're responsible for our actions entirely responsible we choose to sin and God could just have left us to our own way he could have just left us to face his, his perfect justice that would have been right, that would have been proper but no, he sends his son. He sends Jesus to pay the price instead of us. He, he goes, and Jesus goes as a sacrifice. And that's what he's doing. He's paying. And, and as he rises from the dead, God the Father is showing that he's accepted the payment. He's accepted it. As, as an offering on our behalf. If we'll have him. If we'll we'll turn from living for ourselves and and to live for him. If we'll repent from what we've done and seek to live as as, as a Christian with his power, by his grace. If we'll turn from our sins and believe in Christ and trust him. And yet we still live in this cursed world with sickness and death as present realities. We, We know that. But one day... One day, Jesus will return and we'll meet him in the air with new resurrected bodies just like his. And there's nothing we face in this life that doesn't fit into that story. Is there? Think about it. 
You see, this is big. What these women discover is big. This is God's plan uh, to save people. It must happen. To, to rescue them. To pay the price. This is humanity's greatest need. This is not the end for Jesus. This is merely the beginning. This is not, it's the same for us. This is God's plan. The resurrection here proves that Jesus' words are true. It's what he said that the angel refers to. He's not a liar. He's trustworthy. He writes a really big check and he can cash it because he's, he's able. As he walks around Galilee, Jesus makes hints at the start about what's going to happen. But, but in time, he, he becomes more and more um, explicit about it. Look, look, chapter 9, he says, The Son of Man, that's, that's himself, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He tells them a second time in Luke 9 and then by Luke 18 and he tells them with even more details for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and after flogging him they will kill him and on the third day he will rise. What he said came true. For these women, his words were so important for the present. They could could see it. But they were also vital for the future. For Jesus said other things. Other things that were so important for how to live for him as a Christian, as a believer. Like in John 16, he said this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That, that, that tells you why there's difficulty. That tells you why there's suffering. That, that, what he says is true. But take heart. I have overcome the world, he says. Remember that now as we live in this difficult place where we have the already, but we're looking forward to the not yet. But we, we live in a sort of squeezed metal. You heard of the, the squeezed metal? <laughs> The idea that that we're in between this, what we have already, but we're still looking forward to the not yet. It can be difficult. And the not yet is so wonderful. It may appear bleak or difficult for you right now, but you know what? In the end, God does all things well. I have overcome the world, he says. And it might seem tough now, but that's because we're not at the end yet. We're not at the end yet. And for, for that, Jesus has said to us that he'll be with us. Uh, and when we feel the bite of, the, of, this, of living in this old world, under the curse of sin as it is, we have to remember what Jesus said. It'll be hard, but I've overcome it. And he's due back soon. The Christian faith is no pie in the sky escapism or wishful thinking. Uh, it's no future without present reality. It's no crutch to just get you through. Centered on the cross and resurrection. The Christian faith is a system of faith which takes into account and interprets all of life as one meaningful whole. And that is what I say to you this morning. It, it's, it's, it's the most reasonable of all attempts to explain life. And you know why? Because it's true. Because it's true. As Lee Strobel discovered, this is no small matter of a dispute between him and his wife. This matter has far-reaching consequences for each and every one of us. 
As the women discovered, this is not just about what, what they're facing right now in terms of whether, where's the body gone, we're upset. No, this is massive. This is massive. It's a universal requirement for us to set up and take notice today. The evidence is plentiful and compelling. Everything has meaning. It matters. Everything in life matters. Everything fits into the story of the Bible as, as Jesus tells, it, it would, tells us it would be. And we rejoice. For he has risen. Just as he said he would. Just as he said he would. Let's bow our heads together in a moment's prayer.